Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. Mm-hmm. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we hear the voices of Holocaust survivors Leslie and Eva Eigner, born 150 miles apart in Czechoslovakia at the start of the Nazi invasion. In this episode, we will hear about their childhood experiences of discrimination and violence as Jews living under Nazi rule and how they eventually found each other. Deegan Larkin has their stories. And uh, when I first started first grade, that was the first time I really can remember back and personally experiencing discrimination. That's Eva Eigner. At six years old, she was still adjusting to her new home in Budapest. We had to start wearing the yellow star. And I was going to school. And one morning, uh, as every morning we got up and said the national prayers in the classroom, the teacher said, Jewish children, please stand up. And we had to stand up, and we were sent out of the room. We were told we cannot say our prayers with the rest of the class. First time I really uh, encountered anti-Semitism, it was in, in Asia Kuivar, in Novesamki, uh, when I was going to school. That's Leslie Eigner, Eva's future husband. Back in Czechoslovakia, Leslie lived out a parallel childhood of anti-Semitism and oppression. Going to and coming home from school, I was chased and beaten many, many times, especially as the anti-Jewish sentiment rose by the Nazis' uh, advancement. But when, when the Hungarians took over, then it really started changing. There was a lot of talk. I remember my, my uncle and aunt and grandma talking about Hitler and, and the Nazi advancement of Hitler in Nazism advancing in, in Germany. And, you know, they heard about atrocities. as I say. I, was, I wasn't supposed to hear these things at the time. So I remember going home and asking my mother why I was sent out of the classroom. Why couldn't I uh, say the prayer with my friends? And by that time, so much anti-Jewish uh, movement started in Hungary. My mother didn't want me to get into any kind of a problem, so she said, you just have to do as the teacher says. But I remember thinking about that for a long time. Why was I different? Why couldn't I say the prayer with my friends? I didn't quite finish first grade because uh, the last couple of months was interrupted. 
After Hungary invaded Czechoslovakia in 1938, both Leslie and Eva's fathers were stripped of their business licenses. With few job opportunities in their small hometowns in Czechoslovakia, both families fled to Budapest in hopes of finding employment in a bigger city. Eva, who was two, left first with her sister, mother, and father. Leslie was only 10. It happened to work out that he did find employment in his field, but he never was able to continue his uh, own business. He could never get licensed again because he was Jewish. So we had um, a meager living, but uh, we got by. I felt it was in a way a change of behavior of neighbors and and friends where we live, you know, because we lived in a community where was, you know, a few Jewish people, but we lived in a mixed community. And I think when all this anti-Jewish propaganda started, a lot of people sort of wanted to be a standby or they didn't want to get too involved. And they cut their friendship or acquaintance with Jewish people. And I remember that uh, some of the children I was playing with or people my mother was visiting with, it sort of slowly discontinued. After 1939, things started changing rapidly. Actually, my father looked into leaving the country, but uh, he didn't have the means to take the whole family. And I stayed behind because I said, well, you better finish your schooling. And, and uh, I just took my sisters along. The intensity of anti-Semitism, and that's when I really were, as I said, chased and beaten many times, going to school or going any place if I was alone. So we grouped up many times and kind of walked each other home. And uh, it was some atrocity during that time against the synagogue, broken windows and stuff like that. So it was it started to intensify, definitely because of the, the Hungarian Nazi party was getting stronger and they were getting helping hand from the um, German Nazis. Leslie eventually moved to Chepel, a neighborhood on the outskirts of Budapest, to join the rest of his family and start his next year of schooling. He had hardly settled in when his circumstances changed again, this time with news about his father. was called in, it was just like somebody being called into the army. But he wasn't in the army, he was taken to the forced labor camp with no, you know, with uh, building roads and bridges and digging for the Nazi war machinery. By then the Nazis were marching against the Russians. And so Hungary did not put up any resistance when the Nazis came in. Czechoslovakia, Poland did put up some resistance, very little against the uh, Nazi machinery, but uh, Hungary, they opened the borders, and they just marched in and marched through Hungary. In 1943, when Eva was six, her father met the same fate. Resources for the families grew scarce, and their communities more dangerous. What I can say is it was family unit was started to fall apart in a way because my father was taken away and my mother was holding the family together and we were apart from our old my my most of my uncles and aunts stayed in the airship Novazamki in the town where I born and my grandma stayed there so we were kind of new in this whole town and we made some Jewish friends and uh, that's all we had really so slowly our life really 
started to change even for the worse. The schools didn't continue because of the war and the bombings. And that's about the time last I went to school. And by that time, we had to start, like I said, we were wearing the yellow star. Jews were restricted from going anywhere but work. They couldn't go to the library, movies, or out after dark. Soon, Eva's family got word her father died. And then, a few weeks after, there was a knock at their door. They took my mother and uh, my sister, and I was left with my aunt, who was, my mother's sister was uh, quite a few years older than my mom. But that was devastating. Who is here now to take care of us? That was a terrible time. I, I still remember how my mother cried when they took her and how we cried. They put her on a train, which they didn't know exactly the destination, but they were told they're going to some camp. And at one point, when they opened the door on the train to put in some food, my mother jumped off of the train. She was captured by a German soldier on gunpoint. And my mother spoke Yiddish and Czechoslovakian, a little bit of a German And she got on her knees and begged this soldier. He said, please, my husband is already killed, and I left uh, two children at home, and if I don't get back to them, they're not going to survive. And for some reason, this man had a heart, and he pulled out a picture from his wallet, and he said, you think I like to fight this war? He says, I have a wife and three children back home, and showed it to my mother and let her go. Struggling to survive without his father, and now forced to live in the Jewish ghetto, Leslie, who was 15, worked as a machinist to help his nine-year-old sister and mother. His other sister worked and lived in a paper mill. But a few short days later, they were forced to leave. They picked us up with a truck and took us to outskirts of Budapest, and they gathered all the Jews from the neighboring towns, and then they had a transferred for something like 4,000 people, we put us in the cattle cars. We were transported from that big brick factory. We ended up in Auschwitz. Days before we arrived to Auschwitz, they opened the door twice, we emptied the barrel, they threw in some food. Half of the cattle car, uh, the people were able to squat down at night, and the other half are standing. There was no room for all of us to squat down. We were ordered out of the cattle cars, and there were these couples, which some of them were in a striped suit already, and they were ordering us and separating the older people, women and children, to a group, and the men in one group. I was put into the men's group, and we had to line up in front of Dr. Mengele, the chief medical officer in Auschwitz. And he was selecting us right or left. And whoever went to the right went to the gas chamber right away. And that's where I saw my mother and my little sister last time. 
my mother turned away and didn't want to see me. After Eva's mother made her way back to Budapest, she learned from neighbors that Eva and her sister were taken from their beds in the dark of night and lined up by the side of the Danube River. I just remember being horribly scared and hanging on to my sister and crying. And my sister would tell me, don't cry, everything will be okay, the Red Cross will take care of us. We stood in that line, seems like for hours. And some miracle happened because you can imagine with all these crowds of people being on the riverfront and the Nazis were shooting the children into the river. And my mother somehow from the line heard my sister's voice. She took out her valuables and uh, her money, whatever she had left, including her wedding ring, and gave it to this cross arrow man. He said, please pull those kids out from the line. And uh, she pulled us out of the line. We heard later that not hundreds, but thousands of children and oldsters were killed by the river that night. Clutching blankets for warmth, Eva's mom snuck them back into the ghetto. Meanwhile, in Auschwitz, Leslie found ways to survive. Day by day. And we were led into this Polish military camp. We were eight, ten of us sleeping with a blanket on the banks. And we were, then we were led in and we were ordered to, but I cut our hair off and, and, uh, and gave us a striped uniform, gray and blue cotton uniform. And I worked, working in the kitchen. And what I saw is the crematoriums, which we didn't want to believe. It's, it's what it is. First, I thought maybe it's the bakery. It's the chimneys were burning day and night, and uh, burning uh, human body stents was always around us. And uh, we were constantly ordered around. We had to stand up for counting in the morning for a couple of hours. It was so dehumanizing the conditions that, for example, when we were lining up for food, the first man got a pot in his hand, and then I counted down five or eight or ten ladles of soup, and I counted down so many person. And we were sitting around that pot, each of us a spoon in our hand, and we were eating one spoon at a time. We discovered that food meant life, and we were watching each other as hawks. Those who tried to escape were hanged in sight for all to see. Dr. Mangala, the SS officer known as the Angel of Death, who had divided up Leslie's family, performed experiments on prisoners. In the camps, family members sent their kin to the crematoriums. They had to dig mass graves and set fire to the bodies. I even can't say that I, I decided I'm going to survive. It was, it was uh, hanging on to life. Leslie kept to himself in the concentration camp. His assignment to kitchen work helped him survive, as did a few key moments of kindness from strangers. I thought I was the luckiest man. I was 
order to work on my kitchen. Started working in the kitchen, I thought maybe I, closer to food, I can sustain myself. The hunger is always around us. For almost three months in the kitchen, every morning I had to report in. That's where I was, cutting potatoes and slicing a, a cabbage for sauerkraut. So I was able to eat all the raw potato and cabbage. Then one occasion I was working in the kitchen, a German SS guard yelled, shut up, and I didn't hear it. I was talking to the next fellow, and he threw a pitchfork at me, it went through my ankle. It got infected, I couldn't walk. It was dangerous if somebody is uh, disabled. So they, were, they put me into the hospital barracks. So I got bandaged, and I stayed in the hospital for a week or 10 days. I remember the name of the chief doctor in hospital. He was a Jew from Prague. And uh, he came around one night and he pointed us, several of us, you, you, and you, you go out back to your barrack. I didn't want to go because I was still limping. My feet wasn't still well. I pleaded with I'm not well. I, he sent me back. The same night, trucks rolled off front of that hospital barrack and I emptied it. They took everybody who could walk out of the hospital to the gas chamber. So he saved my life. I did not have my personal friends there, and so I, I become really a loner. It actually, it was that we kept friendship without names. Like one of the older fellow, when one time I was washing, gave me his shaver, you better shave off your fuzz from your face so you look older. There was some camaraderie, but it was such a, a horrible situation that we just didn't build friendship there. It was survival from day to day. Leslie was nursing an injured foot, and soon he would have to go before Mangala. This type of injury could land him in the gas chamber. So Leslie struck a desperate deal with a fellow prisoner. He offered two pieces of bread to change uniforms with him so that he could get on a transport out of Auschwitz. The man, who was in an equally desperate situation, because he wanted to stay in Auschwitz with his father, agreed to the switch. So we changed uniform and I was in the transport. They went back to their barracks. We were marching out in the next day to the railroad tracks and they put us into railroad cars. So I was going out of Auschwitz, hoping to survive. In the ghetto, Eva's mother, who reunited with her sister, worked each day to keep the family alive. There was typhus and scarce food and constant fear. She constantly was praying that she could help her children to survive. I remember how much I wished that we would have some heat and food again. And as a child, I think I just was going from meal to meal to day to day. And I think what 
The biggest happiness was for me when my mother came back and I had this terrible fear all the time that she will be gone again. I was just, uh, my mother said that she had to sit with me, she had to sleep with me. I would absolutely not let go of her. I had this tremendous fear all the time that we will be separated again. And then, liberation. I just remember that everybody said, we can go home, we can go home, which I didn't quite understand. The war is over. And they started to walk out of the ghetto, my aunt, my mother, my sister, and I, and they were taking turns of carrying me. And as we were walking out of the ghetto, everybody was just so starved. There was a horse laying, which was shot by bullet on the ground, and somebody said, this horse is still warm. And to this day, I remember in two seconds, I saw a skeleton of the horse laying there because everybody was running and uh, cutting off of chunks of meat and uh, taking it home and cooking it. We went back to the apartment uh, where we always lived and my mother was shocked. There was not not one stitch left in that apartment, including the furniture and everything was carried away. I remember her crying. She says, how am I going to cover up my children for night? I have nothing here was nothing left. And she went downstairs to the manager's apartment and came up and she says, you won't believe it, my furniture is in the manager's apartment. She went back down again and uh, told them, this is my furniture, you have to give it back to me. And they threatened her and called her a liar and everything. And she turned one of the chairs over and the stamp of the railroad from coming from Czechoslovakia so my mother said, you're either going to bring this furniture back to me or um, I will get some authorities and make you move it back. Well, they, they gave us back. So that's the only thing we really recovered. Russian soldiers had liberated the Budapest ghetto, allowing Jews such as Eva to return home. Meanwhile, Leslie had managed to get out of Auschwitz but was on a cattle car to Germany. In the small southern town of Lonsberg, he and fellow prisoners were ordered out of the cars and marched down the street. And as we were going through this town, it's a remarkable thing happened with us. Can't forget it because it was so touching to some degree. People from behind the fences, from, from the windows, were throwing food into the line. This were, it was in the middle of Germany. And we were not accustomed to any humanitarian gesture, and they would have been shot, or if they would have been seen. They were led to another internment camp and put to work building hangars for the Nazi Air Force. With heavy artillery heard in the camp as the Allies advanced, Leslie was there briefly before being forced to march to another camp where he contracted typhus and lice. The Nazis let the Red Cross in to inspect the camp. The Red Cross brought in blankets and food. With the Nazis in retreat, the prisoners were forced onto cattle cars again. A a live bomber just came down and hit the whole train very hard. They machine gunned the whole train and the first pass over my cattle car, both of the fellow beside me died. And whoever was alive, we scrambled out. By then it was no guards around. We went into the woods. Well, our freedom lasted maybe two days. In the meanwhile, we 
when I, they came around with dogs, they chased us back to the cattle cars and never removed the bodies. And as I later learned, this train was called uh, the death train. The train, he later found out, was headed to Dachau, the German concentration camp, 16 kilometers northwest of Munich. Ten days after arriving, the camp was liberated. But it was a happy day. I was just a, a walking skeleton. I, I couldn't walk by myself. And my condition was such that I don't think I would have helped last another week, if I if that long. But things started to change it. We got plenty of food. Leslie was taken to an American field hospital where he slowly recovered. One steadier on his feet, he took a train back home to Czechoslovakia. I didn't find nobody. Then I went on the train again and headed toward Budapest. By then, we had some papers that we can travel as displaced persons and got to Budapest. It was a real chaos after the war. At first of all, you know, so many of the buildings were bombed. There was a shortage of apartments, tremendous food shortage. Broken but still alive, Leslie and Eva worked to resume their lives. They reunited with family who they worried were lost in the war. Leslie found his sister. His father came back to Budapest behind the Russian alliance as the Germans retreated. Eva reunited with an uncle and several cousins. The families cobbled together a meager existence. And then Leslie, now 26, and Eva, 18, met. Actually, my my uncle was working with her at a distance ankle. He was a furrier in Budapest. And he told her, you want to introduce my, my nephew? And he got introduced and had a long engagement, 59 days. It's total coincidence that we coming from the total same background, actually the same countryside. We were born 150 miles apart and we met up in Budapest after the war. We met and married. And then five months later, we left the country. It was 1956, and Eva and Leslie were home, finally, but not comfortable. The Hungary the couple returned to, beaten down by war and emptied out, was now under Soviet rule. The Eigners found themselves adjusting not only to married life, but life under communist regime. It was not a free government. It wasn't as free as we were in Czechoslovakia as I grew up. It was such situation that you didn't want to talk to your neighbors about politics. Because if you talked against the government or, or some, something anti, you disappeared. A lot of people, a lot of families disappeared in Hungary like that. And they were not trusted anymore. And they were just taken away. Many of them, they don't even know where they went. We so much wanted to be unknown, unnoticed, because somehow this fear when you go through so much, never leaves you. So we didn't get involved in too much, tried not to get involved in communism either, just to work and try to live a peaceful life. I served in the Hungarian army for two years. It was difficult, but you, again, you didn't have no way out. You were inducted and called in, and that's it. You, you served your country. 
It's, it's even if you don't have the feeling for it, you didn't try to express it because if you did, you suffered for it. It's the oppression was all around us all the time. My mother used to say, how come we have to be always involved in something? We had no freedom whatsoever. You couldn't even as much as listen to the Free Europe radio because if your neighbors heard it, you disappeared. And then came revolution. In 1956, Hungarian rebels rose up against communism. When the revolution broke out, regardless if you were involved or not, everybody was a target if you were in the wrong place in the wrong time. So we were just newlyweds, and one morning we woke up with my husband. And uh, the anti-revolutionaries were looking for some communist. And somebody told them that in this building there are communists hiding. So they machine gunned the whole, all the windows out. Some of the revolutionaries were looking for someone and they were gun machining into every single apartment, into other house. And the bullets were flying over us as we were laying in bed. My husband pulled me down from the bed and we laid on the floor. I told my wife, roll off the bed, don't get up. But they never came in. They weren't strong enough to... to Chase down everybody. Student protesters marched down the streets of Budapest, defacing the communist Hungarian flag and chanting poems of rebellion. The smothering grip of communism gave way to violence and chaos as Hungary turned into a battle state. But for a while it looked like, you know, the Russians were going to win and freedom is uh, going to be in Hungary. And we were elated. We thought finally we're going to live in freedom. As time went by, we realized this is not going to happen because uh, the Russians were taking back back Hungary and, and they wanted to put it back under communist ruling. One morning, we were standing in line for bread, my husband and I, and there were two men in front of us standing in the line and talking, and they said, let's take care of the communists first, and then we get the leftover Jews. And uh, my husband and I looked at each other, and we knew in that second we're not staying in this country anymore. We went home and we started to make plans how we can leave. My husband said, I survived the concentration camp once. He says, I'm not going through this again. And that's when we decided to escape. The only person I told is my family. And Unfortunately, my sister was still sick. She couldn't leave. She wasn't in a condition to leave. So then my mother felt she didn't want to leave her in that condition, so they stayed. We were 15 of us, five children in our group, people from our walks, and we paid off a Hungarian border guard. We went to the border and we had a name, and we met a Hungarian border guard close to the border town, and he we paid them off. Uh, in Hungary, if he could, could show us how to get into Austria. Well, he took us into a farmhouse. It was Christmas Eve. 
We thought this would be a good night maybe to escape because the soldiers would be celebrating. We thought it would be less guarding on the border. And it was cold winter. And in the middle of the night, they started to help us out from this farmhouse. And they advised us to take white sheets to cover up, to blend into the snow. They took us out and walked to the border. And the border was marked with, like in, if it was a woodsy area, it was 200 feet, 200 feet of woods were cut out in a, on the borderline. And they used to have mines there. So this soldier, this border guard, told us, you cross this, here it was knee-deep snow. You cross this and you are in Austria. But over there the border was zigzagging. But you know, in this darkness, we were not sure if we already passed the border or not. And all of a sudden flares started to go up and we could hear the Russian soldiers and the voices. So we didn't know, should we move, should we not, where are we? And every time the flares would uh, go up, we would hide under the sheets because the whole area was like daylight, and we didn't move. And you believe it or not, these children, the five children, they were so quiet, they like knew that they are in danger. We stayed there most part of the night until the point we thought we were going to freeze. Finally, we decided doesn't matter who going to find us. It was five little children in this group. We're going to freeze to death. And that was a cornfield, and they carried some of the dried up corn leaves and made a fire to warm up by. And in the distance, we saw a little house, probably a mile away or so, with lights on. And so my father and one more man, he was 57 at that time, walked down to this house and knocked on the window, hoping it, it will be German people speaking, and it was. And so they woke up the town, they rang the bell, and they came out for the rest of us with a snowcat, took us into the schoolhouse and fed us, and it was freedom. The couple made their way to Vienna, where they took refuge in a camp. The Red Cross provided food, clothing, and transportation around the city. By February, with help from Leslie's stepbrother, who was living in the U.S., the Agners set sail for a new home, their final home, in Portland, Oregon. When they arrived in the U.S., the couple faced a new language and unemployment. But within months, Leslie and Eva found their footing. Leslie found work as a machinist, and Eva became a hairdresser, eventually opening her own business. For years, the Eigners stayed put. For the first time in their lives, free to settle in one place. When we came here, I felt very homesick for my family. It was hard. It was very hard until my first child born in uh, 1960, our daughter, and then 1964, our son. I missed my mother and sister tremendously. This was the first time really in my life I was away from my family and such a new surrounding. 
But I think when our family came, my uh, son and daughter, that was uh, very healing and slowly we made our roots in Portland. There's a saying amongst Holocaust survivors that to have a good life is the best revenge. And the Eigners felt the same as their children grew up and fell in love, married and had their own children. But they also felt a responsibility to speak out, to tell their story. We went through so much prosecution and discrimination. And I think discrimination can start with little things. It can start with as much as racial jokes or religious jokes. It can start with just small hatred, which can grow into big one. And I feel that the way to fight is to educate the young people, to let them know what discrimination can do and how innocent people and children can get killed and go through such a terrors like we did and have their family pulled apart. I think we all have to educate the children about that. And in our own way, we all have to fight discrimination. I think people can be enticed to be anti-Semite. Their mind can be changed easily. It's like happened in Germany. It's a mass hysteria. Rulers needed a scapegoat, and this, this was it for Hitler. And, and the genocide is going on all around the world. It's unimaginable. It should be unimaginable. And so I, I just hope people learn and, and they, will, they will look at each other as human being, as equal. We should respect each other. Leslie Eigner died in August of 2021. We are grateful to be able to share his story with you. To learn more about the Eigner's experiences, read Elizabeth Marin's story, Miracles, Memories, and a Message, on our website. Many thanks to the Oregon Jewish Museum for collaborating with us on the upcoming exhibit, To Bear Witness, which opens in December and features the stories of genocide survivors, and for providing us with the original 1994 audio interviews with Leslie and Eva. Many Roads to Hear is a production of The Immigrant Story, in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was produced by Deegan Larkin and Fran Silverman. Rick March did the audio editing. Music was composed by Corey Larkin. The original interviews were conducted by Sylvia Frankel, Eric Harper, and Lainey Reich. Our executive producer is the always compassionate Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.